Hello, this is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman, and it is Saturday, June 6, 2020, approximately 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and this is the We Be Imagining podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Ilan Bendel. What's up, Ilan? Good afternoon, Khadija. And Stanley Munoz. What's up, Stanley? What's up, Khadija? How you doing? Good. I'm good. I'm all right. Um, and today we have on the show Andrea Miller, who will soon be joining the faculty of Florida Atlantic University in the fall 2020 as an assistant professor of social media and digital cultures in the School of Communication and Multimedia Studies. Drawing from transnational feminist studies, Andrea's research interests include critical military and police studies, racialization, drone warfare and preemption, cybersecurity and algorithmic governance, ecosystem ecology and the politics of extraction and infrastructure. How are you doing today, Andrea? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, as you mentioned, we were initially going to speak a couple of weeks ago and we had to reschedule. And I feel like so much has shifted in the world since then when we thought that the world had already shifted due to COVID. And now people are flooding in the streets demanding justice for George Floyd. Um, Your research area feels so critical in this moment. Do you want to, I kind of read a few sentences of your academic bio, but do you want to say a little bit more about yourself and your work and kind of how you see that in this moment? Yeah, certainly. So as you mentioned, I'll be joining um, Florida Atlantic University in the fall. I just finished up my PhD at UC Davis in cultural studies. And generally my work, um, you know, my background is in feminist studies and science and technology studies. And what I'm really interested in is thinking through how some of the digital technologies that are operationalized in the war on terror Um, really emerged through these circuits and histories of racialized policing and trying to really sort of unpack the the relationship between the digital and the non-digital as it, you know, sort of um, relates to these histories of colonial violence. And I feel like right now you, you, in your work, you talk about the, the sonic atmosphere of policing when you think about like unmanned air, aerial satellites and vehicles um, kind of in the everyday of policing. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about drones and how we want to shift the conversation away from the newness in the idea of the liberal subject to kind of the ways in which things are different or changed now. Yeah, so drones are always a really sort of interesting entry point into thinking about technologies of policing. Um, You know, of course, they're most commonly associated with the U.S. war on terror and U.S. practices of targeted killing in places like Pakistan, Afghanistan, um, and broadly in the Middle East and um, Africa. And so what often happens when we're discussing drones is there's this very um, sort of techno fetishistic understanding of how they function. That is, you know, the human is often evacuated and it's broader networks and infrastructures are kind of left hanging in a lot of cases as well. Um, And so in reality, drones are complex infrastructures that are composed of a number of technologies and both human and non-human actors. um, And they've been, popular um, popularized a lot for um, the ways in which they it, it seems like a video they're often talked about in terms of how they replicate video game warfare or something like this right um, but they've also been used especially small unmanned aircraft have been really adopted by U.S. police departments and not even U.S. police departments but also different forms of civil agencies as well um, and they're they're commonly deployed. Um, they're also, of course, they become popular consumer technologies. They're used for play and fun, um, and they've been used by grassroots activists, as we saw in the case of Standing Rock, right, where you had folks like Myron Dewey um, and Women's Indigenous Media Collective using drones to catalog um, police violence at Standing Rock. Um, so. They're kind of ambivalent technologies. And what in my work and some of the work that I have done with Karen Kaplan is we are trying to sort of unsettle this idea that they're entirely new, right? So instead of thinking of them through these hyper-technologized frameworks, what we do and how we want to think about them is to instead think of them through a longer history of air power and sort of trace them back through the, the use of air power by both, um, in both military contexts as well as domestic policing contexts. 
Um, you know, we can trace this back to the use of um, air policing by the British in during the mandate period um, in the present day Middle East. Um, we can also talk about it in terms of the incorporation of air power into U.S. police departments, um, which, you know, goes back to like 1914 with the first Curtis FC plane that was used. And um, really, as soon as you see the development of air power in military context, it's sort of already always being folded into other sorts of policing operations as well. And I'm curious, what do you make of, you know, I'm thinking in the COVID-19 context, I saw the LAPD LAPD using drones to um, make public service announcements to clear people who were unhoused that were living in Skid Row and different places on the West Coast. And then I'm also thinking about the Minneapolis mayor's um, press conference where he talked about contact tracing. We so quickly transitioned from contact tracing to COVID-19 to contact tracing to identify these outside agitators. And how do you kind of incorporate, I guess, biopolitics into your analysis and kind of the use of drones as um, not just for the safety in general, uh, but safety in a public health situation? Yeah, so this is something that's so particularly interesting about this moment that we're in right now and this confluence of global health security with straight up security security, as we would sort of conventionally think about it, right? Um, And the idea of the good drone has been really mobilized a lot in recent years. So the idea that you're using drones to perform humanitarian functions such as search and rescue, or in this case, contact tracing, um, getting out public service announcements. And what we see, of course, in this transition that you mentioned that is so quick, right? Like this move from having the good drone that's functioning in this civil capacity that might not necessarily at the outset seem particularly insidious to immediately being able to flip that, right? And it's, it's sort of re, um, re-articulated through this conventional security framework where it's then being used to, to monitor protests, et cetera. Um, and so I think that, that that relationship is one that we really need to pay attention to in this moment um, because it, it sort of troubles this idea that security is housed explicitly and only within sort of areas of the state that we would conventionally associate it with. So like with the military or with police um, and rather security is sort of a security like militarism is diffused and dispersed across state functions and outside of the state as well, of course. Yeah, no, and I and I, I found it really helpful how you included the idea that the CBP came under the Department of Homeland Security post 9-11 and this idea of borders and the enforcement of the nation state at the same time being called into question during globalization, but then kind of with the security threats of the war on terror, um, people double downing on them and how it's like interesting, right? You have on one hand this like laser show at Stone Mountain about drones with no drones. You have drones (laughs) being used to man the border because it's so expansive and it's 2,000 miles, yet they're constantly malfunctioning due to weather issues. I think you said like 172 maybe miles they might have covered out of that 2,000 miles. So on one hand, you have um, this, this increasing reliance on the technology, but the damage seems to be more in the imaginary and this idea that you can um, police and micromanage and collect data to predict the future. Um, so I was wondering if you could say more about that tension. Yeah, so I think you're kind of highlighting a few things, right? That drones allow us to first kind of unpack this imaginary of a of the nation state as a whole and bounded and complete formation, right? Um, and then also this idea that the data that drones, the, the way that drones mobilize a particular particular attention to data and predictive analytics can tell us something different. And then one of the things I think is really interesting, even if we're thinking about the last few weeks, right? Um, So there was the, I'm sure y'all heard, there were the reports of the predator drone that had been used at the U.S.-Canada border um, being redirected over the protests in Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. And so I think that this, this is a really sort of great... Um, moment to think about like how 
borders themselves, of course, are not stable. They are, they are fluid, they are changing, but also the ways in which what is inside that border, neither is that stable also, right? So like the idea that if we are going to think about, like, so in my work, one of the things that I really try to do is destabilize this idea that the war power and police power are entirely separate things, right? So rather than thinking about the militarization of police as something that's kind of, you know, unique to this, um, to the 2020s and sort of post-Ferguson, that rather when you trace the emergence of the modern police formation, especially in the U.S., it's sort of always already militarized um, and emerges as like a counterinsurgency um, program. So it's really developed in various contexts to quell racialized disorder and perceived um, disorder to the colonial nation state. So, you know, you're ha- you, it comes out of slave patrols in the Southeast, you've got, you know, the Texas Rangers in the Southwest, and then you have these, um, the way that it forms to quell labor unrest and um, in the Northeast as well, right? So this idea that these technologies themselves if we trace the way that they're used, we can sort of start to also trace the historical instability of the U.S. as a nation state formation as well. Um, and so I think that that's one of the really powerful things that in, in this moment in which a lot of not just the U.S. security apparatus, but a lot of different areas um, socially as well, try to portray data as this um, you know, sort of end all be all in terms of understanding and managing populations, right? Um, that if we actually trace the uses of the technology, they, they really point to these very unstable histories and fissures within these social formations as well. Speaking of the, the history of, of drones uh, yeah. in relation to the nation state, mm-hmm. uh, I think that you you talk about this this uh, characterization of military and civilian drones and how it's specifically not a trickle down. Um, I I think about this because you know in in the early 2010s I was spending time on like DIY drone websites right like oh how do you like build a flying robot like I have no idea <laughs> um, right and so so it's it's fascinating to me because you have this predator drone which is really a product of okay I mean there's like this history going back to the Germans in, in World War II, but then the kind of modern predator drone as, as a product of, of the Air Force. And then the commercial drones, which emerged out of this kind of DIY culture, um, and then rapidly became the domain of, of really one Chinese company. And this, this seems to me to make like the American military industrial complex very nervous, right? Like they they talk about it constantly that this company DJI is is just supremely dominant in this area of kind of very small unmanned aerial vehicles. Um, and I was wondering if if you could kind of discuss at all how how that operates, right? Like how how we interpret the fact that this technology is largely dominated by by a country that is not American, and how we respond to that. Yeah, so I think it just really depends on how how we're framing this, right? Because, um, of course, DJI is a very prominent company. Um, there, there's such a proliferation right now of companies that are developing these technologies, though, that I think rather than focusing our attention on a sort of domination of one particular country, and this does point to a particular anxiety on the part of the United States, but the reality is that the U.S. and Israel are still exporting the vast majority of militarized drone technologies, right? So, but, I mean, this this kind of gets at a larger question that always interests me is, you know, there's this ongoing debate that I mentioned about, like, the good drone and the bad drone, right? Like, the weaponized drone or the drone that can be mobilized for humanitarian purposes or even grassroots activism. and I think it just points to the real ambivalence of technologies in general. And if you, you know, really go back and you trace the emergence of various technological forms, um, even pre-digitally, there's always a great deal of anxiety about them. And that's something that I think just, uh, it's, you know, when you're talking about 
the ways in which these emerge in particular zeitgeist, I mean, it's just the, it, it tends to be a, a heightened sense of anxiety as technologies proliferate and as they're being used for various purposes. So I, I think that one thing, I think, I think it's both really important to highlight the, um, the ways in which the market is being sort of continually saturated by new and developing companies that are working on these issues um, at all levels, really. Um, and then also to still kind of bring these conversations back to the ways that a lot of these technologies and their infrastructures emerged through um, the military industrial complex and the ways in which those, those technologies, there's never sort of a one-to-one ratio of this, but the, you know, there's this kind of circuit that emerges with this technology as well as other forms of technology between the military, um, policing, and consumer markets. Um, it's just like GPS, right? Like similar kind of idea. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um... You know, one of the things that I'm curious about is that having been at the protests in New York City and being in the epicenter of both um, the exponential rates of COVID-19 transmission and the level of repression in the United States against protesters who are demanding justice for George Floyd, um, while there have been a lot of videos of excessive force and actual murder, I think two nights ago in Crown Heights by the police, they, the New York, the New York Police Department is kind of the equivalent of a developing nation's army, and so they have the ability to use much uh, more extensive force than what I've been seeing deployed, at least at this point. Um, and I'm a huge part of what they seem to be focused on is this ideological violence, like reframing the protest as looting, as rioters, talking about outside agitators, and going back to your point about this. Um, kind of unreal distinction between war power and police power, you raise up the dedicated ideological labor required to shore up the bounds of civilian military distinction. And I'm just wondering, where where do you see the ideological work of the resistance? Um, just because in the public consciousness, I think that there's awareness of, of what's wrong with policing somewhat. We saw ICE separating kids at the border. We have some idea of these detention centers, but kind of the this the scope and expanse of this kind of carceral imaginary that claims to lay hold to the future. I don't get the sense that outside of a few academic domains, maybe in some reporting, that this is kind of a broad, there's a broad understanding about this. And so I'm just wondering when you locate the history of these technologies, kind of where do you see also the history and kind of the status of the resistance? Yeah. So, okay. Can you say a, a little bit more about what you're asking in terms of the relationship between the history and status of the resistance and the way that we locate the history of these technologies and sort of this war power, police power debate? I just want to make sure um, that I'm following I you correctly. Yeah, yeah, no problem. No, I was thinking about um, kind of the idea that people say that the that the police are becoming increasingly militarized. People are pointing to the National Guard being called in, the riot gear that people are all having on, and you say that there is not really this neat distinction. But the idea that there's a distinction that they there's a lot of dedicated labor that was involved in um, having people believe that to be. And right. so I'm just I'm just wondering like how are we gonna fight? I I just don't get the sense that the everyday person really grasped um, the expanse of their power. And so where do we, how do we fight against that? Or do you feel like there's a resistance or like what, what could that look like? Oh, Does that yeah. make more sense? I mean, I think that that's one of the really sort of tremendous um, aspects of this moment, right? Like there is this in just very real and deep violence that is occurring, that is ongoing um, but we're also seeing this really widespread movement that is much more mainstreamed than I have seen in the past in my lifetime to defund and abolish institutions like the police. And I think even as someone who teaches abolition and has, you know, worked in abolitionist movement circles, um, I 
I just have never um, encountered a moment in which these ideas have been mobilized so broadly for folks, you know, and seem seem possible and are possible when you have like the Minneapolis City Council talking about defunding the police um, and various Minneapolis, as well as like other cities talking um, already severing ties within their school systems with police. Um, so I think that I think, of course, there. This is sort of a a really vital and vibrant time of resistance. And I think that you know, Rachel Hertzing had this really awesome piece yesterday. I don't know if y'all saw it um, about political education in a time of rebellion, right? And just it's it's so great. Or did you say you did, or you didn't see it? I didn't see that, but I'll, I'll look that up. Oh, it was awesome, and I can email it to you. It was wonderful. Um, but I mean, I think that. I, you know, I often when I'm both teaching or in um, other non-academic spaces, I still find the language of militarization to be really useful as an entry point because it is something that has become much more tangible for folks in recent years. You know, I mean, it's when you're seeing like Bradley Armored Eagles go down streets or you're noticing the qualitative change in the way cops look or seeing images circulated of riot police. Um, and, you know, I think we had discussed in our email these analogies that like streets look like Baghdad or streets look like or it's like Gaza. Right. Um, and while I, I think it's important to really trouble these, I think that it's a good entry point into a larger conversation um, and to think about political education in terms of the ways in which the responses of the state and the development of these technologies and these tactics and the ways that they're sort of historically constructed as counterinsurgency is always belies the fact that the state is under duress, right? So at every moment in which you can sort of historically trace these intensifications of both capital and technology and violence within the state, it's because there's a vibrant, vibrant resistance, right? So, um, in, in my work, I, you know, a lot of times some of these discussions of the militarization of police locate this phenomenon, even when they're locating it earlier, they sort of situate it in the middle of the 20th century. Um, and one of the things that I've noted in my work, and um, particularly in the chapter that's in Ruha Benjamin's Captivating Technology Anthology, is that we can trace this much earlier, right? So the idea of the state police formation, like the idea of the very notion of, of a state police. Uh, you know, it started in Pennsylvania and it comes directly out of the Spanish-American War. And when it was um, created, it was in response to labor unrest and in the extraction industry in Pennsylvania. And so you have the Pennsylvania State Police formed in the early 1900s. Um, and John C. Groom, who was the first superintendent of the PA State Police, went and modeled this police formation of the United States off of the Guardia Civil um, in the Philippines, as well as the Royal Irish Constabulary. So the very first police formation in the U.S. is explicitly modeled on colonial occupation forces to quell resistance. Um, and then, you know, of course, it starts in PA, it gets exported to New York, and then around the country. And then, you know, suddenly in the 20th century, we just imagine that like the state police is a thing that's always been around. And so I, I think that you're like really pointing to a very important thing that um, to focus on in this moment that as we're having these conversations, whatever the entry points into them are, is that at every turn the um, the response of the state is a response, right? Um, to quell up to to quell unrest and uprisings and rebellions, um, and because it's an anxious formation. So yeah, I think that it's it's really sort of that that is a tension, but I think it's a really useful tension. Something uh, I found interesting is I actually disagree with uh, Khadija a little bit in that. I find that the public is having a better grasp than ever before that the military uh, power and s police powers are one and the same. Mm -hmm. uh, I was actually talking to my brother-in-law who he's a CBP officer. And I don't know if you all have seen the video of the elderly man being pushed in Buffalo where they're pushing the line forward. They push him down and they keep walking right past him. 
Um, and he talks about the fact that that's uh, technically justified. It's not just or right, but in terms of um, the policies and the tactics that he has learned uh, regarding riot control, that behavior and that action would be justified and not helping him would also be justified and waiting for the people in the back to support him. Uh, and so it's interesting to think about what is what is just, what is true, and what are the rules that the military or the police state is playing by. And we're finding very little distinction uh, between the two. Um, I want to actually connect that to the idea of preemption that you talk a lot about in um, the essay in uh, Captivating Technology, which I loved. And I wanted to know what your opinion was on how you see the role of preemption playing out in these protests and in these insurrections. I feel like it is becoming harder for the military or police state to uh, preempt the actions of the population now that the population, I find, has a better understanding of this asymmetric relationship, right? And with that understanding and with the resistance and trying to defund, it's uh, it's becoming increasingly difficult. And you see them using more and more power uh, to try to quell these pro- uh, riots and protests, and it's not really working. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how they're trying to use preemption moving forward from here. I don't think they know anymore. Um, so I think that one of the (laughs) really interesting things about this moment is that we're seeing, we are seeing a moment in which the state is in crisis and it is struggling to keep up with its, with what's going on. Right. So any sort of veneer that it's had with this idea of sort of preemption as both a guiding philosophy and principle and as a practical realm that they're mobilizing through things like data analytics. Um, I think that this really, this also really belies this mythology of techno determinism that you see within both the U S police apparatus, as well as the U S military, you know, like the police as they were professionalizing in the 20th century, such a large part of that, was through this narrative that technology would make policing more professional and more humane, right? And it's this very progressivist narrative that as it becomes increasingly technologized, it will get increasingly better, increasingly more efficient. Um, and preemption is so deeply tied to those, those ideas. Um, and this idea that as we can just gather more and more information and create more and more um, data mosaics and you know, increasingly rely on technology that they can have some sort of idea of the future that can be um, really annexed in particular kinds of ways. Um, And I just don't think it's working right now. Um, I mean, I don't think it was working to begin with, but I think that it's the mythology, the story that the state is telling itself about itself is in crisis right now. And, you know, one of the things that's always been really important to me in my work, and I really take my cues from Simone Brown on this and others, um, is this idea that when we're trying to trouble some of these ideas around technology, that it's important to situate them within their historical antecedents um, and the sort of non-digital or not only digital forms that they've taken in the past. Um, And I, I think that this is really highlighting this, that there is the relationship between like technology is obviously being mobilized in this moment. Um, and I think that it's, it's also trying to find new markets for itself in security industries. I mean, even PredPol is trying to, you know, remarket itself and rebrand itself in COVID as a way of, it's like, well, we're not really working right now because all these patterns are changing, but you need us to understand how these patterns are changing. Um, and in reality, we're, we're seeing the role in which force brute force, um, the body as a technology and, you know, more weapons that we, more conventional weapons like the police baton, like tear gas, right? That they are, not only are they being used in a widespread capacity right now, but that they have continued to be um, one of the major ways in which these um, police and military formations wield their power. Um, and so I think it's just really sort of giving the lie to this idea that technology is going to save anyone. That's so real. Um, it's also, 
uh, I want to think about um, blackness and its role in the Black Lives Matter protest and it's this inability to control these protests and control these people. Um, I love that you spoke about the 500 by 500 foot radiuses back when you were describing Predpol, again in the Captivating Technology essay, of being able to create these spaces that they define as saturated with risk. And now we're seeing an entire protest being saturated with risk, right? Um, and anyone who is a protester walking on that ground is uh, liable to be taken. Um, one way or one entry point for preemption that I thought was interesting, maybe a conspiracy theory, but, you know, uh, hopefully just a conspiracy <laughs> theory, is the fact that they're arresting en masse so many people, right? It's over 11,000 protesters that have been arrested. And thinking about the large swaths of data that uh, you've commented that they're they have recorded and are continuing to record, including license plate data, I wonder if... Um, this arresting of populations is a way to specifically track who, um, uh, how do I say this? A way to preempt who will continue to um, incite protest or incite resistance in the future. And so I'm wondering what you think um, about, about them arresting people, if it's more than just a fear tactic. Yeah. So I think that, you know, one of the ways that I have, I've talked about preemption in my work, um, both in the captivating technology chapter and elsewhere, is trying to more rigorously historicize it outside of this idea that it's just a war on terror thing or a post 9-11 thing. And in that sense, the way that I've thought about it, um, and you know, here I really also draw from the work of Catherine McKittrick, um, Ruthie Gilmore, is the ways that preemption is a guiding principle of settler colonialism and racial capitalism, right? So the idea that you're preempting the capacity for particular um, spaces and practices of life, right? And in the U.S. Um, and within, you know, U.S. settler colonialism, that is you know, very deeply racialized. Um, and so I think in that sense, yeah, like these practices of containment, and again, I think this goes back to the conversation that we were happening having earlier, that these sort of anxious moments of containment where you're scooping up lots of protesters is both a way of trying to preempt their ability to be, to go back into the streets. And it's, you know, the stakes are also so high right now too, because as your practices of containment right now, and they would be exposing folks to harm under any circumstances. But when we're talking about this in the context of COVID-19, um, I think that it's preemption in this context is one that is radically charged with the potential for different forms of harm, right? Um, and so in that sense, I think it is, I think there definitely is a connection there. I'm, I'm hesitant to make any sort of like sweeping analyses about it right now, because we're just sort of seeing it unfold. And there's so it's, to me, I think one of the things that's really striking is I, I, I really, I think we can connect these to these other things, but I really question that this is a moment of strategy and of tactics on the part of the state as opposed to one in which the state is responding and reactionary in full force to threats to its, um, the consolidation of its power, right? Um, so I don't know if that answered your question at all. That was a bit of a rambling response. No, <laughs> no it, 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 it raised <laughs> a lot of things for me. Um, I, I really, uh, I think that the framing of police as a kind of counter protester on the individual level, right, in addition to their role as they function within the state, I think is, is super important in, in their actual like actions on the ground, right, like at an individual level. Um, but then also this this idea of we've spent so many months now talking about flatten the curve, flatten the curve, and and this this kind of chronogeography you discuss in, in your piece uh, on Stone Mountain. But, you know, it's it's exactly what you said. They are trying to, to flatten the curve of the protests, right? Like it, yeah. it, the methodology has not been to to stamp it out necessarily so much as it has been to 
to dis distribute it over time and so that so that it'll it'll weaken and they can better manage it right that's where the curfew comes in that's where they put this 24 hour you know we have this rule in new york you have to be arraigned in 24 hours and you know the judge basically waived it and it, it seems to be a way just to reduce the strength and intensity of protests mm -hmm. and spread it out over time to better manage it and i think exactly what you're saying about predictive policing is fascinating because it is right like the technology is all rooted in machine learning and statistical inference it's all rooted in pattern matching based on what you've previously seen and it speaks to me uh to the kind of necessity of radical action right like if if your entire predictive policing system is built on the data you've seen in the past, then it's kind of imperative as a form of resistance to act in ways that that you have not acted previously. Um, that was a kind of rambling without necessarily a question, but <laughs> I wonder what you think about it. <laughs> yeah, so I think that it's also, you, you at the very beginning of what you were saying, you touched on something I've been thinking about a lot this week too, that you know, there's been a lot of discussion about like this is a this is a cop riot, this is a police riot, um, and it's 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 highlighting in this moment. And I've had a lot, I've heard a lot of folks, and I've been engaged in these conversations, trying to go back to this idea of what does distinguish the cops from the military, right? And one of the things that keeps coming up in these conversations, um, and like I said, I, I, I don't think there's any tidy distinction. And I think as the state arms are increasingly being folded in, we're seeing aspects of that. But there is this sense of autonomy that the cop has, right, that um, is both institutionalized and individualized in this moment. Um, and I think that that's a really interesting thing to pay attention to. and. Um, for those of us who, who study these histories of police power, Marcus Dirk Dubber um, does really great work tracing um, the contemporary modern police formation back to its roots in Greek and Roman law. And you see it coming directly out of this idea of paternal power and this power over the household. Um, and I've, you know, I've, I've read that for several years. I've incorporated it into my work. And I think that I'm coming to understand it in different ways in the last two weeks than I perhaps ever have. Um, and yeah, I think that one of the, one of the other old, sorry, I'm like really his, getting onto like a historical geek train here. Um, I think we're with you. We're yeah, we're with you. On, do it. <laughs> okay. So, talking along. <laughs> So like one of the things that you um, see when you start looking at um, not just the emergence of the modern police formation, say in the U.S. coming out of counterinsurgency, but the ways in which um, military policing was theorized, particularly by the British. And you have um, uh, Charles Gwynn did a good bit of writing about this. He had actually had a book called Imperial Policing. And the whole idea about it, and you see these sort of early notions of racialized contagion that he's talking about is that the, the military police, that really the military and the civil police, there's no distinction between them. They exist on this continuum of force and it's just a matter of what they're responding to and where that delineates what they're doing, right? Or which, which end of that spectrum they're on. But the idea is that you can't control for passion, right? and that you can't control for spontaneity. And so you just have to be prepared to respond to it. And so that that's what really, um, in his writing, it was the distinction between civil and military policing was that one was sort of the everyday management and maintenance of routine order and the production of that order, um, which Mark um, Niklaus talks about. Um, and then on the other end is these moments in, of rebellion and uprising that require an intensification of violence and force on the part of the state. Um, and so that's a very long winded way of saying yes <laughs> to what you just said. <laughs> um, I mean, just a quick follow. Uh, an interesting observation I recall having was I spent some time in Israel, right? And Israel is a highly militarized society. And the interactions between Israelis and Israeli police officers is fascinating because I have never, like in any country I've ever been in, I've never seen people 
talk to police officers with such disrespect Mm -hmm. and disregard, you know, like getting pulled over for a ticket and just like shouting at the police officer or or whatever. And it's, it's very interesting how you, how you draw the the lines between civilian policing and militarized policing and how that operates in, in a highly militarized state. Can you say more? I'm... I mean, I, I think that when the, when the entire culture is, is militarized, the, the function of the police is quite different, right? Like, as, as you stated, right? Like, not, sorry, we live in a militarized state as well, but, but one where, where everyone has kind of participated in that militarization in the way that it happens in Israel. Um, I, I just I thought it was interesting how you're describing that that we kind of need to to understand the differences between civilian policing and militarized policing um, and how that might operate in different cultural contexts differently. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know a lot of a lot of folks you know often raise comparisons. you know there's comparative settler colonial studies that looks at the relationship between the United States. And Israel, um, with the Israeli occupation of Palestine, um, and I think it's important to also think about the ways. And I, this gets back to the idea of policing as a form of counterinsurgency. And I should mention Stuart Schrader has recently published a wonderful book on this um, called "Badges Without Borders," um, but. And I, I'm, you know, I think that it's interesting to think about how this develops in the context of the United States when we're still an actively settler colonial society, right? So it's a militaristic society for sure. And, you know, now when I'm teaching, my students um, have lived their entire lives in a state of continuous war, so much so that it's just, you know, kind of passe. They don't think about it. I've I've been in classrooms where I've asked my students to you know, like how many of you think that we have been are at war right now? And nobody raises their hands. How many of you think that we have been at war in your lifetimes? And stu- two students raise their hands, right? Um, and so I think that there is a degree of, I think, questioning the ways in which these ideologies of militarism operate differently, even as they're by, like operating in with forms of intensity in both cases is a really interesting thing to look at, right? Because I think a complacent militarism is a very dangerous, dangerous militarism. Um, And I think that that's one that we're reckoning with right now in the case of um, the United States. I don't know. No, I was just thinking hearing you talk, we just had um, Catherine McKittrick actually on the show and we were thinking about demonic grounds um, and what's interesting is she talks about both, um, I guess there's two points. So, so one is this idea that the danger of the protesters in the eyes of the state is that they kind of call into question the permanency of the status quo. Um, that there's this idea that like land is al- alterable, like things don't have to be this way. And when people like collectively go into the streets, it kind of raises that the, the the dynamics, the state power, the way things are funded, it doesn't have to, to be this way. But I was also thinking, she talks about the, there's an ecclesiastical understanding of demonic grounds, and there's also a mathematical one. And the mathematical one being one that hinges on this, like, complex nonlinear dynamical systems and hinged on uncertainty. And so I'm, I, I guess I'm just thinking about for me, that brings two questions is one scrolling back a little bit to the shadows of war piece. And you talk about the relationship between Georgia tech and other kind of Atlanta universities and weapons development and North point. And, um, I'm just wondering how do you see like knowledge production in this situation and being within academia in yourself, like how is this kind of a, a part of the analysis and what's going on? And then also, I do. I mean, to go back to Stanley, as as far as I do think people realize the relationship between the military and the police, but I don't know if the fundamental kind of assumptions of predictive policing and one in which that, you know, our lives are calculable. Like, do we really have an understanding of of that argument and like an alternative imaginary? I think people in the streets and they're angry, but I don't know if we know where we're going. 
and that's just scary for me of not of not seeing seeing the end game. Um, so I guess to you, Andrea, if you could talk a little bit about the um, the role of the the academy in this moment as it relates to predictive policing into into drone warfare, and then what you're thinking about like alternative imaginaries. Yeah, totally. So the academy is fraught. <laughs> it is deeply. It is a deeply fraught space in um, so many ways, and one that I think you know, for those of us who went into it for um, with a sense of doing political work within the academy, like you know, that's something that we have to reckon with all the time. Like it's it's deep. It, it's ties to the state are so deep and so wide. So on the one level, like I've discussed in terms of the Georgia Tech Applied Research Corporation, which is an arm of um, the Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta, you know, a few years back in terms of their their military contracts, they were receiving more money in military contracts than any aerospace company in the state with the exception of, I think it was Northrop Grumman. Um, And so that's, I think that kind of relationship is one that is not unique in any way to the Georgia Institute of Technology. When I went to California to the UC, um, the amount of the imbrication of the of higher education with the military industrial complex, with the carceral um, system, and it's just staggering, right? Like all of these technologies, and especially on the STEM side, it's just in some ways, it's it's not even it's just so commonplace to receive defense funding. It's just a very viable avenue of funding. And I will say that a few years back, you know, even humanities scholars were sort of being coached in the UC about ways that we could partner with avenues of defense um, spending and money to like, you know, sort of overcome economic crisis in these different areas by partnering together for innovative solutions of X, Y, Z, you name it, right? So I think that higher education is is deeply imbricated in this. One of the things that um, I looked at in recent research, which was part of my dissertation and what will be my um, forthcoming book project, is the ways that um, in Augusta, Georgia right now, and I really root my research um, in the Southeast. It's something that's deeply important to me intellectually and politically. Um, And in Augusta, Georgia right now, what you're seeing is the use of cybersecurity as this sort of massive platform for urban redevelopment and regional redevelopment in the central Savannah River area of South Carolina and Georgia, which is sort of um, around Augusta, Georgia, over to Aiken, South Carolina, across the Savannah River, and incorporates the Savannah Riverside Nuclear Reservation as well. And within this massive redevelopment platform, you are seeing a It is the linchpin of that is higher education. So you have the Georgia Cyber Center, which was recently constructed in Augusta, Georgia. um, That was a, um, and it is to date the largest state-sponsored cybersecurity center in the United States. And it is a direct partnership between Augusta University, which is the um, public medical school university in um, Georgia. Um, So you have Augusta University, the U.S. Army, um, the NSA through the Cyber Center of Excellence at Fort Gordon is also involved, um, as well as the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, the Georgia Army National Guard. They're all in a single campus, right? So I think that these relationships are not new, but I think that they are evolving and changing in ways that we really, really need to pay attention to, um, especially as we're trying to you know, think of and study how it is we most effectively leverage, um, you know, different strategies of resistance against burgeoning state power. Um, and, you know, as we're, as we're getting close to the 50 minute mark, I was wondering, do you want to say anything else about your upcoming book? Um, I will be working on it. <laughs> um, so it's very much in the, <laughs> the early stages of revision right now. So in, in that project, um, what I'm looking at is the way the development of the ecosystem concept, the scientific biological ecosystem concept that comes out of ecosystem ecology 
um, really is um, developed at the, in large part through the work of Eugene Odom and the University of Georgia at the Savannah Riverside Nuclear Reservation, which um, is a nuclear reservation that was constructed in the early um, 50s to produce plutonium and tritium for U.S. nuclear weaponry, right? Um, and of that 310 square mile nuclear reservation, 90% of it is actually an ecology campus. Um, and so one of the things I kind of stumbled upon this by accident when I went to do work on military and security infrastructure in the region. And I really quickly saw how not only did this idea develop through the U.S. Um, nu nuclear sort of program, but it was being leveraged in various avenues of urban redevelopment, as well as within contemporary cybersecurity programs there. So the U.S. Army Cyber Command is in the process of relocating and consolidating its operations to Fort Gordon outside of Augusta, Georgia. And it's the way that these projects, these contemporary security projects are articulated is explicitly through the idea of the ecosystem. You have the urban ecosystem, you have the cyber ecosystem. And so what I'm really trying to trace in this book is how this idea of the ecosystem is becomes a technology of governance and policing racialized life um, within the central Savannah River area of Georgia and South Carolina. Andrea, I actually have a quick question about some of these um, more militaristic technologies and what it's going to look like, what defense fun funding and spending is going to look like if we do succeed in military uh, or in de um, sorry in defunding the police and police agencies across the country. Uh, something that is giving me hope is that someone like Angela Davis uh, yesterday in a talk she said she was optimistic at this insurrection and is feeling like she is seeing the fruits of her labor but she continues to call uh, for an internationalist or a globalist view of our resistance that way we don't just limit it to what's happening within the border and I think you you give a great deal of attention to not just our understanding of foreigners as being outside of U.S. borders, but how we have foreigners within the U.S. border. And so I wonder what you think the future for defense funding will look like if we do decide to um, defund the police. I'm so glad you asked this question. I've been thinking about this so much in the last few weeks. Um, so... I think that it's the momentum around these moves to defund and disband police departments is so incredibly powerful and just it just really speaks to the long-term work of folks like Angela Davis and Ruthie Gilmore and organizations like Critical Resistance um, who have been doing this work for so long, you know, and like telling us that abolition is possible. And as I'm also, I'm also considering in this moment, this very question, right, of what will this then mean for defense and security technologies? And I would, I've been thinking a lot about the ways that, you know, we will want to also be careful, right? So if, if we succeed in different cities and municipalities in disbanding sort of conventional police formations, and those are replaced by others that are perhaps less explicitly securitized in terms of how we kind of popularly understand that. Um, you know, we're going to have to and want to keep our attention on the ways that things that are much more mundane in terms of security and surveillance may be still operationalized with them as arms of the state, right? So, and I think that like Khadija, you've talked about this too, the way that Child Protective Services uses predictive analytics. Um, these other more sort of like welfare-oriented models that incorporate a security um, sort of sensibility about them. And I think that those are some of the areas that we're going to want to pay attention to. And I also, one of the things that I've noticed, you know, I, I really in the, in recent years have sort of moved away from thinking about some of these more spectacular technologies like drones and getting more and more into looking at cybersecurity. And one of the things that I found really interesting is that cyber security for a lot of folks that I talk to, who even a lot of folks who have and leverage critiques against overtly militarized technologies, is it seems so mundane, right? It just seems boring and uninteresting. And so I think that it's 
those are the things that were that from my perspective, I know I'm going to try to be like keeping my eye on is the ways that these practices that are deeply related to sensibilities of security could become operationalized in areas that may be wins for those of us who are working toward abolitionist futures. Uh, Andrea, thank you so much for talking to us. I know all each of, and every one of us are grateful for just your insight and all that you brought to the table and all the work that you're doing. Um, so in the We Be Imagining tradition, we normally end our podcast with recommendations of something we're reading, listening to, watching that you might recommend to our listeners. Yeah. So, um, oh, what am I reading and listening to and watching? I mean, I think this is one of those really great moments where folks are like really recommitting themselves to study in particular ways. Um, mm -hmm. And so I would, of course, you know, I'm going, I've been recommending a lot of Ruthie Gilmore's work to folks, not only, um, you know, Golden Gulag, but her popular writings, which I think so beautifully articulate ideas around abolition. Um, I also, um, I just sent my mom, actually, Alex Vitale's um, The End of Police and Police, A Field Guide, which are currently um, available through Verso. I think that they're really great texts to start thinking about, um, not only the machinations of policing, but how we can think beyond them. Um, yeah, that's what I've been, that's what I've been thinking about a lot this week. All right. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Elon. Uh, yeah. So I just recently got my cup copy of, of logic magazine. Um, the, it was their issue on security. It's issue 10, but, uh, they wrote it quite a while back, right? It just, it just got shipped to me. It takes a while. And it's, uh, considering it, it kind of was written before, uh, all of this, the protest movements have started up. It's, it's incredibly prescient. Um, but there's one essay in it called Tracing Paper by, by Mitch Azwoni, uh, which really talks about how basically every piece of paper you print on a color printer has tracking dots that say the, the time and day that piece of paper was printed, the serial number of the printer. And this has been used to track counterfeiters, but also to track kind of leaks of information. Um, and it's just this, this incredibly like weird architecture of surveillance that, you know, I, like I love reading the printed word and, and just to think that like every piece of paper I'm reading has this this kind of uh, stamp on it of, of kind of surveillance is, uh, you know, fascinating, horrifying, you know, insert the adjectives. <laughs> yeah, uh, Kadisha? Um, just to Andrea's point about kind of the policing of the everyday and moving away from the spectacular, this came out a while ago, but the book that I love was Misdemeanorland by Issa Kohlerhausen. And when I read that, you know, it's very difficult to talk about child welfare because there's not as much in the public view. And I feel like there's not as much language to kind of articulate this interstitial space of being perpetually investigated, but maybe not being found guilty of a crime, yet it takes over so much of your life. And she, in that book, looks at how like the vast majority of people who are arrested are arrested for misdemeanors. And even if the charges are eventually dismissed, like through a process of marking and waiting and being push through these like series of enclosed containers as you march through this administrative process and that burden, um, how has a, it's like a profound impact of social control. Um, so I love that book. And then just on a side note, I've been thinking about Hitchhiker, the Chrome plugin that Todd Anderson invented because we've been talking about it, but I've not experienced it until we did the workshop this week. And I just, you know, it made the as as much time as we spend on screens during the shelter in place. It made me see the internet otherwise. You know, it's just such a bizarre experience to hitchhike the internet and have somebody guide you through their weird corners of the internet and like you know set NYPD pages on fire um, and have Taco Bell say no Satan. <laughs> just like just a very like random bizarre experience, and I don't know. Like I feel like when we're all stuck in their houses, we don't have those like bizarre random encounters, and that just brought me joy. So that that was my for, for this week. He invented such a great way to be together while apart. It's it's I completely agree. Mm -hmm, absolutely. 
Um, and for myself, uh, two quick recommendations. One is uh, All Boys Aren't Blue. That's the next book that I'm reading by George M. Johnson. I'm just excited to uh, continue to read more like Black gay texts. I, I just, as someone who is Black and gay, it's uh, always a joy to immerse myself in that language and in that rhetoric. And then finally, a show called Hollywood actually on Netflix. Uh, I, it's kind of, it's a fairy tale of what Hollywood could be if uh, people took more risks back in the early 60s. And it's 100% a fairy tale, but I think it was so important for me to watch it now because at the end, all the people of color and all the women win. And it's just, we just need a moment to win. You know what I'm saying? And uh, it's exciting to reimagine um, the entertainment industry with that in mind. And myself as a professional dancer, I know that my blackness is always capitalized on. And so just to have that moment was um, powerful in many different ways. Uh, So yeah, again, Andrea, thank you so much. Um, This to everyone listening right now, uh, please subscribe, review the podcast. And thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you all so much for having me. This has been really fun. Yeah, this was dope. Thank you, guys. Mm